Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of Radio 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network, as well as wherever you get your podcasts, each week we take a closer look at the business issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. After a slow start, Australia is surging ahead in vaccine uptake. The number of people who are unsure about whether they'll get the jab has plunged. As New South Wales and Victoria get closer to reopening and restarting their economies, it's critical to have vaccine saturation if we want to reach herd immunity. So how do we break through those final barriers of vaccine hesitancy to keep people safe while bringing Australia into a new COVID normal? Let's meet our panel. Paul Burke, I'm Associate Professor at UTS and I'm the Deputy Director of the Centre for Business Intelligence and Data Analytics, or BEDA. I'm Dr. Leonora Rees. I'm an economist and I'm a senior lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne. I'm Ofer Mintz. I'm a senior lecturer and associate head of the marketing department at UTS Business School. I guess we should start with an acknowledgement of where we are currently. Vaccine hesitancy is down from highs in May of 29% to this month, the Resolve Political Monitor finding that the number of people unsure if they'll get vaccinated is at 9%. The Melbourne Institute's vaccine hesitancy tracker has the number slightly higher at around 16%. Overall, it looks like uptake is high across the country. Is it possible for Australia to reach a COVID vaccination rate equivalent to that of the childhood immunization rate of 95%. I think it's going to be quite difficult to achieve that, right? You know, in an idealistic way, as someone who's supporting the vaccine, you know, we could have everyone take the vaccine, you know, move on from there. But if you look at the numbers throughout the world, actually our achievements are quite remarkable in such a short period of time. So many other countries are are basically plateauing at this high 70s rates, low 80s, if they even get to 80s at all. And there's enough people who are both hesitant and I would also call them like procrastinating as well. That'll be hard to achieve 95%. But that shouldn't take away from our admirable efforts so far. It's within reach. I think it does depend on how we go about it. We want to make sure we're motivating and incentivizing people to take the vaccine for reasons that will be sustainable and that will bring everyone along on the journey. So there have been various different strategies that have been contemplated. Do we pay people for a vaccination? Do we provide more information? Do we provide local community leaders? And I think the way that we go about it will not only determine if we can reach that goal, but it will also factor into a sense of social cohesion and keeping people on board for when we probably will need boosters down the track and to make people feel intrinsically motivated that they're doing it for altruistic or for the right reasons rather than being bribed potentially by money. Yeah, I think a 95% coverage rate is quite ambitious when you look at some of the statistics and the tracking that's going on both here in Australia but also around the world. 
we're a little bit behind here in Australia, so we're playing catch up, so to speak. I think at the moment we're just past that 51% of people have had the full vaccination. And I think we're around about 76% on the first dose. When we did some research earlier, late towards the end of last year in 2020, the number of people who disagreed fully that they wouldn't take the vaccination was around about 11%. So that would take us to just under that 90%. So there's always going to be a number of people in the community who will not take the vaccine despite all the incentives that are put in place, despite all the restrictions on their movements, despite all their things around civil liberties and being able to travel, being able to meet with family and friends. Despite all of that, you're going to have a percentage of people around about that 10% who simply won't be vaccinated. Paul, you over at Beta have recently conducted a survey into vaccine hesitancy and you were looking specifically at the barriers and enablers yeah, so this to was a COVID vaccine uptake. What did you find in your recent survey? A number of other countries as a sort of benchmarking, Canada, United Kingdom, New Zealand and the United States. And we had roughly had around about 4,000 respondents. And we looked at 11 factors that we thought would be driving significant levels of vaccine intention or hesitancy. What we found the number one reason for hesitancy was trust in the government for approving a safe and effective vaccine. So that means that in order for people to want to go out and be vaccinated, they really have to feel that they've been a safe and effective process that's been transparent by the government, by the pharmaceutical companies that they've been working with. We also saw perceived effectiveness of the COVID vaccination for others as a driving force for vaccine hesitancy, which was something that we extended the model. Most of the models around vaccine hesitancy look from the individual's perspective, the severity of the disease, the likelihood that they're going to catch the disease, the effectiveness of the vaccine for themselves. Whereas we were looking at factors that they were evaluating of other people in the community and whether this would work and be effective for others. And that was the number two driver there. What was also interesting, we found a level of people who were wanting to free ride, as we termed it, which is, I will not get the vaccine knowing that others in the community will get the vaccine because I don't feel that safety and effectiveness associated with the vaccine. I don't want to take the risk. So I'll let others take the risk on my behalf, but I will benefit from the vaccination program that they're participating in. And that's referred to as free riders. Of course, we had the conspiracy beliefs about vaccination as a strong, significant driver of vaccine hesitancy. So that covers off the people who do have those anti-vaccination beliefs. That's obviously something that's a big part of the issue around here in terms of how people are getting the information the trustworthiness, that information, but also the accuracy. And it is quite a difficult thing for people in the community to navigate all that information and then come to a decision about whether they're going to be vaccinated or not. Let's talk a bit more about the anti-vaxxer cohort, the conspiracies around vaccines as one of these bigger impediments to vaccine uptake. If we're saying that there is this amount of people who are strongly hesitant around vaccines, how do you abate something like conspiracy theories? How can we practically remove this barrier or at least start to pick away at it? You have to really understand their own mindsets, right? We think of customer centric strategies. In this case, it needs to be a patient-centric strategy. We basically broke it down into different segments. So you have different customer segments and you can think of a diffusion of innovation. So there's people who are interested in a new product. 
Here, people were very diehard interested into the COVID vaccine. And then you have people who are very hesitant. Now, the hesitant people can be split into procrastinators, hesitant, and outright rejectors. And this is where you really need to come down to what is in it for them in terms of what's in their mindset, what drives it. So Paul's study is fantastic because it gets into some of these drivers. So you can think about it as a think, feel, do situation, the theoretical framework. So the think is the rational. You're countering misinformation. You're trying to convey the positive aspects of the of vaccine, what they're getting out of it. But really the feel is where it's missing out. And that's this trust factor, okay, this trust. You want to build this trust with vaccine. Other people are taking it. People are doing well. And at the same time, you also want to make sure that you are encouraging kind of a feeling of missing out. So FOMO is a huge thing. So their plans of opening up has actually has been brilliant in terms of people who are not vaccinated are going to be, have this fear of missing out. And I want to add that when the international borders, if they do in fact open up to, for example, Victoria and New South Wales, people in Western Australia and Queensland are definitely going to have a feeling of missing out. And that's going to have a big switch on vaccine uptake, reducing hesitancy because people are going to feel they're missing out. You have to get this thinking, then go to feel, really push on the feel. The last step is the do, which is go to them. Why did New South Wales have such a great uptick in terms of people taking the vaccine? They went to hotspots. They set up pop-up clinics. They went to those who may have been more hesitant or at least difficult to get to a vaccine clinic. So they went there and actually helped facilitate that last step. Trust and credibility is a big issue amongst the anti-vaccination movement. As, as Ofa said, distinguished from, from people who are uh, just hesitant altogether versus flat out refusal. And a lot of this trust and credibility is coming from the sources of information that they're relying on, but also the sources of information that they're mistrusting and discrediting. Unfortunately, the way in which humans work is that we tend to receive information and bias it towards the outcomes that support our own point of view. So a lot of this information that's being provided by health authorities, a lot of people are dismissive out of this. They're biasing that information to suit their own beliefs, which is not to get the vaccination. Now, obviously, there's a lot of information in this day and age, which is different to previous challenges in terms of, of health information, is that there's lots of information through social media, through websites that have been set up to push the anti-vaccination movement. Now, how do you discredit that type of information when these people are basically looking for information that doesn't discredit these point of views? So this is a very, very, very difficult challenge for health authorities. The information dimension is extremely relevant here. And also these aren't normal circumstances. We have a population that has been overloaded with all this brand new information in the course of the pandemic to begin with. What is COVID? What causes COVID? How do I avoid this? The cognitive overload for people was extremely stressful and, and strenuous. And people were trying to figure out trustworthy, credible sources of information Social media played a big part in that. It's also about people potentially feeling like there is a lack of control at the moment when you are in lockdowns, when you've had a lot of 
active freedoms taken away, then there could potentially be a psychological response where you want to assert your sense of control or psychological control. I want to reserve a right to make a choice over whether or not I get a vaccination because that's something where I do have, I have reclaimed a sense of autonomy, self-autonomy. There is this fusion of, of multiple factors here and the intersection of information and dissecting information is influenced by who do people trust, what authorities do they trust, and that it's also influenced by their previous encounters with those authorities. Do they already trust governments? Do they trust the health and hospital system, or have they previously had negative experiences with those systems? So all that background experience or baggage also enters into people's position and the last thing we can do is make assumptions about what drives people. I think these surveys are really important for trying to peel away the layers as to where are people placed psychologically? What is their value system? What is the organisation or the entity or, or the group of people in society who they trust? Their local ambassadors? Is it a sporting team? Is it a local politician? Is it a community leader, a religious leader? Someone who they can relate to, who they identify with? And that can be a powerful portal for credible information for them so that they're not scrambling for something online, for instance. The other thing I'd add there is we mentioned the fear of missing out, FOMO. This is also about shifting norms or setting what is the norm? What is the expected behavior within society that is good for overall well-being? And one of the reasons why the childhood vaccination program has been successful is because it's set up to make the default that you go and get your child vaccinated. Otherwise, they're going to miss out on being able to go to childcare or certain family benefits. And so in behavioral economics, we talk about the power of the default. The initial starting point or the initial decision is one that is good for society and if you want to choose something else then the onus is on you to take up that option but to do some extra work and put in some extra effort to deviate from that default so I think when we talk about bringing people along on this journey to feel comfortable to feel well informed they're making a choice that this is the norm this is what everybody is doing yes you will miss out on certain things if you don't realize that you know it's in your interest as well as society's interest one thing when we're talking about FOMO is it's not just social, but it can be economic FOMO as well. It comes into, okay, you can't go buy things that you would normally go to. You can't go work at a certain occupation. And those are things that have helped, for example, in Israel, um, I was at a webinar, I listened to a webinar um, by the, the chief health officer there. And she said they have this thing called the green pass, which is this passport system saying you're immunized, fully vaccinated, sorry. And she was talking about how it worked for the economic side, not just the social side. And that was the single biggest driver in Israel of getting people to get vaccinated. She said that wasn't their intention, but they figured out that that was the biggest driver. And the other thing I just want to want to add too, because both, both Paul and Leonora mentioned it, is in terms of how you build this trust. And what happens is you want people who are both macro influencers and micro influencers. So the macro influencers are at a, at a high level, you know, like politicians, famous celebrities, famous doctors, et cetera, that people seem to trust. But who the person trusts will depend on understanding that patient. The second level is the micro influencer, which actually has a bigger role. I mean, those are basically your everyday people. So like us on the call, right? Like if someone among us was hesitant and they'd hear us talking about, oh, you know, all these benefits we've cured by getting vaccinated. That's the biggest issue. That's the biggest driver of building this trust. And the historical precedence of this 
is actually during the last major vaccination rush during polio, I'm going to use the U.S. example, they enlisted Elvis. So Elvis was the takeaway, this big tension getter, hey, get vaccinated to cure us from polio. But at the same time, they had this thing called the March of Dimes, which had teenagers, younger people, young adults going around city to city, building a community base saying, well, going around getting the hesitant and the procrastinators, go and get your vaccine. Look at all the things we can do together. So you want the macro and the micro to drive this all forward. I think one thing that is quite important in this debate to recognize is the role of incentives being offered by uh, organizations and businesses. One of the things that's been put forward by Qantas is to offer potentially mega prizes. I think some cinemas are offering popcorn and choc tops to those who are vaccinated. Hungry Jacks and Krispy Kremes are offering free food. So there's a real interesting take from a business perspective as to what are these, is their role in terms of serving this vaccinated segment. Is there an opportunity for businesses? Now, some of the research shows what is the impact on vaccination rates? empirically most of the studies showing is that these types of programs are having no impact on daily vaccination rates there's a really good study that i think was done over in the us looking at the states where they had a lottery set up for people who were to be vaccinated and be part of a cash prize versus the 26 states who didn't have such a program set up and it had no impact in terms of comparing those two sets of states on that daily vaccination rate now, does that mean that's going to change people's behaviour from a business perspective? Well, if we're looking at the outcome in terms of would I go to this store versus that store, would I place a greater amount of brand equity or brand trust in this company versus this company, we can start to see that this is something that businesses may or may not want to think about from their own perspective in terms of driving people into their stores, in terms of increasing that reputation. And I think there's an opportunity for businesses to start thinking about how can they take up the invitation from the Australian government to set up programs such as this. The other aspect of this uh, rewards program is what are some of the ethical issues about the companies that are participating? On one hand, we're seeing some companies saying, let's offer free popcorn, let's offer beer, let's offer takeaway meals that potentially aren't as healthy for a healthy behaviour such as being vaccinated. And there's a little bit of a, a, an interesting ethical behaviour point of view, ethical consumerism, that I think some companies are going to have to potentially look at their stance and does it fit with their overall championship of, of some of these important topics. That's a great point. And also it echoes what really we want from businesses ideally to get through the pandemic. And that's a sense of innovation and not just standing still and hibernating until we're out of this pandemic, but how can they contribute? And the role of incentives, Paul's absolutely right there. There are some that have been proven to work, but others not necessarily translating into a change in vaccination uptake, but potentially helping to set the, the culture and, and the norm and to show a sign of societal endorsement that this is the behavior that we want to reward and encourage and what we stand for. So it's a representation of values. Also, I think where businesses of the private sector can play more of a role here is by facilitating the physical locations and 
spaces for these vaccination hubs to be set up in a mobile form or to give up some space, especially in these geographically remote areas. So I think that maybe there's capacity for the government to have done more with the private business sector throughout the whole of the pandemic to come up with collaborative solutions. I know like in the US, there's more of that spirit where the private sector steps in and goes, what can we do? And we haven't seen that as strongly throughout the pandemic. So it is an opportunity for businesses to do it, not just for profit-oriented reasons or reputation reasons, but because of the values of what they represent. If we can go back to that, the power of the default, vaccine mandates are becoming more and more common in workplaces. For example, healthcare workers from the 30th of September in New South Wales have to have their first vaccination dose or they have to go find a new job. And, And we've heard leaders talk about a vaccine economy. Do you think that vaccine mandates help to normalize vaccination or is there the potential that they create further polarization between those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated? Setting the default doesn't necessarily mean setting mandates. So setting the default could be that you just make the system very, very convenient, accessible, everyone's automatically registered, everyone is entitled to a day off paid leave to go and get vaccinated. It just becomes the norm in your work and family and community life. It doesn't necessarily imply mandates. I think mandates is sort of another question altogether. Now, it could be that mandates do have the effect of setting the norm, but we do have to be mindful of potential repercussions or backlash or polarisation because we are now talking about rights and, and freedoms and that could activate or trigger people's resistance even more. I think mandates make sense when it's a setting where there is a acute public health and safety need. You know, someone is on the front line, those workers have a right to work in a safe environment. We're talking about freedom from harm as well as freedom to do things. So I think it's a case-by-case setting. The issue around mandates at this point in time is whether you have enough accessibility to the vaccine in the first place. We know that there's a number of people who are logging on to the various websites to try and book in a vaccination. They simply can't do that. They hear of other people who are stepping in in front of them, shall we say, when they want to get the vaccine themselves. So the problem with mandates is that you're placing restrictions on people in terms of their ability to work, their ability to travel, as the case might be, to access things when they're accessibility is being determined by do they have access to the vaccine in the first place and there's going to be potentially pushback here is because there's a number of people are saying hey I want to be vaccinated I want to be vaccinated just simply can't be catered to by the system and that's where you're going to get this frustration between people who do actually want to get vaccinated now of course we know that in the population there's just simply people who do not want to be vaccinated because of their own belief system but What are the implications for these types of people who are never going to get vaccinated and all of a sudden are missing out on certain things, such as potentially employment, such as potentially travel, such as potentially going to weddings or restaurants or whatever the case may be? What will that do in terms of their activation, in terms of speaking out against these types of mandates, whether that be through the social media, whether that be about their voting behaviour at both the state and the federal level? Will they stamp their feet and say that they were supported or not supported in their right, shall we say, to be not vaccinated? I think the first step is really to go back to what we were talking about earlier is building this trust. 
right? So you want to make sure you build the trust because if you enact a mandate that people don't trust what you're mandating, well, it's going to have backlash. I was in, you know, policymaker's shoes. I would very much push for a high level, high expensive advertising marketing campaign, communication campaign to basically build this trust, get people into wanting to get the vaccine. And you can think about the money involved. We're losing billions of dollars in economic output every week because of the lockdown. And so why is there not a big campaign to basically overcome this? Why is the return not greater? I think New South Wales has actually brought the hammer down with the mandates and it's been effective. So I think you try to build the trust, try to build the trust, try to build the trust. And at some point you're gonna to have to say, okay, we do need mandates. But again, it comes from trust. We did some research where we looked at trusting government uh, at the state level, but also comparative to other places around the world. Australia, comparative to other nations around the world, has quite a lot of trust in its government and in terms of looking after them to where should those regulations be. So one of the things that we're looking at in wave one was some of the restrictions on hairdressers being open, real estate, all these different things. What we found is that the public's approval was right on par with what was being restricted. The only thing that people were having difficulty living with was the restrictions to visit family and friends. And if you look back historically, what was the first restriction to be lifted? It was being able to visit your family and friends. And we can see that in more recent times with people being able to go and visit within their social bubble, but also children being able to have a friend over during the school holidays. So this is consistent with where are the pain points for people living under these types of restrictions. If we can go back to the free riders aspect of this. Now, the New South Wales government announced their roadmap towards the next few stages of reopening. Vaccinated people will be given certain freedoms at an 80% threshold. And then on the 1st of December, most interestingly, when they estimate over 90% of the population in New South Wales will be vaccinated, that's when unvaccinated people will effectively be reinstituted into society. If we're talking about free riders as people who are not getting vaccinated currently, surely you hear an announcement like that and you're like, well, I'm just going to wait. If we're thinking about vaccination as the default, if you hear something like that and you're unsure, then why won't you just wait? Unfortunately, that type of information for a lot of people is, is basically that push to say, okay, well, I'm hesitant. This is just reinforcing that I can remain hesitant and not be vaccinated and rely on the benefit of this coverage being extended to the rest of the population and not me. So when people start, for instance, to thinking about Christmas right now, well, no longer are we going to have to think about those family and friends in terms of who's vaccinated and who's not vaccinated. And in terms of incentivizing vaccination, this is definitely going to encourage that free riding problem. So this isn't necessarily a good move to be revealing the hand as to what's going to happen with the unvaccinated. Yeah, free riding is it's also used in economics when we talk about, you know, people not pulling their weight and exploiting the efforts of others. And the way that we often think about how do you deal with free riding is that you somehow have to shift the cost so that it is internalised by the free rider. So they can no longer get away with the effort and the costs that have been borne by the other members of society or the group. Now, I think the scenario that Paul's pointed out might be a bit generous because 
I imagine there are going to be some segments of society who are vaccinated, who've gone out of their way to protect their family, their communities. They don't necessarily want to mingle with the unvaccinated for fear of their own safety. That's a potential. So it could be that there is a social penalty from not being vaccinated. And it might be an unwritten penalty. It's not necessarily in law. But we could end up with some sort of segmentation in society where there is a social cost for people who are unvaccinated that they will end up internalizing, like bearing that cost personally because they end up being excluded or ostracized from other groups in society. Now, it depends. Do they put weight on that? Do they value that? Or are they happy to stay within their own social groups and not be worried about what they can't and can't do relative to vaccinated groups? But I somehow that free riding, often we call it like the market, can sometimes respond in an organic way to shift the costs back on those free riders. We can look at other countries as well, right? So this is happening in most other countries that have started the vaccine campaigns a year ago. So it's happening in Israel where the rate is like 78%-ish for who's been vaccinated in the US where it's you know, like 55%. And so it becomes easier in theory than it is in actual practice. So you're not always sure who has been vaccinated and who has not. And that's why people are unvaccinated because they don't have to actually a lot of time express it, right? And then it becomes, sometimes there's family involved. It becomes this awkward social interaction as well. So for the most part, people end up doing the default, which is, okay, I'll see you. I'm not happy about it. Kind of stay away. Maybe I'll try to avoid you. But there ends up being these interactions. This is going to continue to be a problem because it's hard also to enforce who is vaccinated and who's not. It's not like your house going to have a bouncer outside saying, oh, and usher saying, you can come in. Let me see your past. So it ends up being a little bit difficult in that, that end as well. You were talking earlier about micro-influencers. Shouldn't we say, you know what, Nan, if you're not going to get vaccinated, no Christmas dinner for you. Is that the way forward for communities where there are family members that you do care about or friends you do care about, but they're unwilling to get vaccinated? Conversation that we can start now and encourage amongst families is to talk about what's going to happen in a couple of months' time when people do want to get together for Christmas and New Year's celebrations and start encouraging members of the family to really start being vaccinated as part of this idea of being able to interact without worry, without concern, particularly with older members of the family, like Nan or, or Pops that you may not get to see all the time. All of a sudden, we want to be able to invite them to the family home and not have to worry about these individuals. So it is about those micro-influences, about the people that we trust and place credibility on beyond the governments, beyond pharmaceutical companies. It's about those people that we care about. They have some sort of power over us when it comes to the social norms. They do sway our opinions and they can change our attitudes. So if we can encourage those conversations now, then I think that will go a long way to start tipping people over the edge, so to speak, and really start thinking about their views on vaccination intention. As we've noted, the rise in uptake in vaccination in Australia has been impressive to say the least do you think that we are potentially going to see a slowdown in the coming months or that with this current mix of restrictions slowly being eased and and tethered to certain vaccination targets that australia can continue to see a high uptake in vaccination so there's going to be a slowdown because you're also reaching the peak too i have to say i've been quite impressed the one good thing that's come out of the lockdowns has been the uptake because I was voicing concerns in March, April, and before that about how I was really worried about hesitancy 
in the Australian population. One thing we're having now is we actually have gotten enough supply over the last two, three weeks. So the government should be commended about all their vaccine swaps. Now the government missed, we actually have a demand problem versus a supply problem, meaning that we actually have enough supply out there. So now it's trying to encourage people to come and actually get the vaccine. And I think the harder parts will be where people have been less affected by COVID, right? So if you're someone in Western Australia or in Queensland who no one in your town has even gotten COVID, no effect, you're thinking to yourself, okay, maybe I can wait a little bit. You're going to be hesitant, you procrastinate. And so we will face these more difficult issues. And that's where some of these more proactive approaches, understanding why they're hesitating, being proactive, going to them, marketing, communication, getting these micro influencers, like Paul mentioned, is important to do now. That's all for today. Thank you to my guests, Leonora Reese, Offer Mintz, and Paul Burke. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss out, and don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe, and I'll catch you back here next week.